Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day. Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely with the R Street Institute. And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute. Our guest today is Sarab Sharma, who was, at one point at least, the president of the UT chapter of the Young Conservatives of Texas. Are you still the president of the YTC? I am. I am the I am the chairman of YCT UT and the statewide organization that oversees. Okay, all right. I, I didn't know if you were still a student or if you had graduated yet. I am a senior in college. I'm almost done. Okay, great. Well, uh, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. You know, we were talking uh, offline before we started about name pronunciation. There was recently, I guess, some article or podcast or whatever about how people who mispronounce other people's names, it's like a a racial thing. And I, of course, if you know me, I am very much a white guy. I'm very white. However, I do have a name that people uh, do have trouble pronouncing sometimes. And uh, so I feel like I'm qualified to say uh, it's actually not a very big deal. <laughs> you know, it's, it's kind of maybe a, a, a minor annoyance. Uh, but, you know, if that's the worst you got, like if you're trying to come up with a uh, argument for why you're oppressed, I feel like you kind of maybe need to do a little better than that. I, I, I don't know. Uh, maybe you maybe you have a different perspective. Well, so here's here's the stance I take. Uh, I used to tutor kids um, back in high school in math and reading. And one day, uh, a gentleman, you know, probably five or six years old came in and was doing his math and uh, reading tutoring. And he 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 brought up his worksheets and and I graded them and started calling out his name to bring him back. And the name was spelled uh, I-S-A-I-A-H. And here I was yelling at the top of my lungs, Isaiah, Isaiah. And so I, I cannot begrudge you, you gentle white folk about pronouncing <laughs> my name if uh, I was capable of butchering something so wholeheartedly and not only butchering it, but being convinced that I was right. And so, right. uh, you know, I, I prefer to let bygones be bygones. I, I consider it a, a mark of assimilation to have a certain grace when it comes to people's pronunciation of my name and intend to keep it that way. I have a friend, um, a, a young a young friend, and her name is Kaylee, but it's actually spelled C-E-I-L-I-D-H, which she swears up and down as a Scottish spelling. And I mentioned this to a friend of mine who's from Aberdeen. And I said, oh, she's Scottish. And he just looked, looked down his nose at me and said to me, that's Irish. So, uh, so I think this is a global thing. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I have my radical views and I think a spelling like that should probably be illegal, but we'll, we'll leave it at that. Right. Well, I, but before we get off this subject, I also have strong views on this because I'm a little bit older than you. Uh, so I've got, I've got kid, young kids. And uh, when I go to the daycares and whatnot, the names are very creative. And I should say my oldest son also has a unusual name, although it's historical, it's a biblical name. But there were a lot of kids in my son's class with names like Sky and Marvel and Samwise. All fine. I don't have a problem with that. The, the one thing that does bug me, though, is when parents will give their child a name that is typical, except that they will alter the spelling in some pointless, unusual way. 
that bothers me because that seems like it's really not original. You're just setting the kid up for a lifetime of having to correct people about, you know, actually, uh, you know, it's Jeffrey without an eye. At least 400,000 extra bubbles he's going to have to fill on his Scantrons. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, yeah. So with that diversion, wanted to have you on uh, to talk about a recent executive order that the Trump administration came out with about free speech on campus, because this is an issue that you have been prominent in, and I I believe you're actually at the signing ceremony for that EO. But before we get to that, I just want to talk a little bit about, you know, your origin story, if you will, as a young conservative, as the president or the chairman or whatever you want to call it of the young conservatives of Texas. So how did you get into politics and conservatism in the first place? What, what, what's the backstory there? Sure. Uh, you know, origin story is a great law firm. I wish there were infinity stones involved in mine. <laughs> well, I don't know. There, there could be. Yeah. Right? There could, never know. Yeah. So my upbringing had this sort of temperamental and cultural conservatism that I only recognize in post. Um, My parents immigrated from India. I myself was born in India. We moved to the United States when I was three months old and proceeded to hop around various locations in the United States for the first 12 years of my life. Uh, You know, Lexington, Albuquerque, LA, Seattle, LA again, Atlanta, and then moved back to India for three years, right outside the capital there of New Delhi in a city called Gurgaon, and then went back to the United States in Dallas. And then I came to school in Austin. And so I got a very wide uh, understanding of kind of American culture, you know, seeing coasts and stuff. And there was a bias towards, you know, the gentle suburbs, but but I've seen a, a good amount, I think. And as immigrants, they, they valued certain things. They valued hard work, which uh, they had frequent trouble in getting me to do. Uh, they valued, you know, <laughs> sort of conservative ethics, uh, you know, could, could be broadly considered traditional values, if you will. You know, they didn't like me cursing. They said, don't date early, you know, these sort of simple things. Um, and another interesting formative experience that I would realize later on, I went to a charter school for my sixth and seventh grade in, in Atlanta, and it was one of the best schools in the country. Uh, it was run by a bunch of Turkish immigrants who wanted to create a school that focused on math and science in a unique way and would consist Consistently ranked number one in the country in National Science Olympiad and stuff. And so that was a very interesting experience, an experience that I didn't realize was political, but but now do. I suppose a, a flashpoint for me politically, we were back in the United States, this was in my 12th grade, and there's a, a news headline. And I was very politically illiterate at this point in time. I had a friend who was very conservative and him and I would kind of go back and forth and I didn't really have any principles. I just enjoyed sparring about the issues. But it was announced that President Obama was going to sign some sort of amnesty thing. I don't even remember what exactly news, what news cycle that was and, and what the chain of events were. But I remember feeling this sort of reactionary anger at that. You know, my family, uh, myself included, had spent the better part of eight to nine years uh, becoming legal citizens of the United States. And it was something we cherished very, very dearly from our adopted country. And I did certainly as well, because I'd just gone back to India and I'd seen what a country sans rule of law, sans free market, sans these sort of things that we we take very seriously in the United States looks like. And so that was a political moment. And, and, and I kind of look back on that as a flashpoint as well. But really, I spent my freshman year of college just starting to read about politics as the 2016 uh, lead up to the 2016 election. The two pieces of content that I consider formative, I saw the first major long form interview that Bernie Sanders did, it was with Vox. And I was like, man, these are some great ideas. And I saw the first long form interview that Donald 
but no, it wasn't an interview. It was a rally. I saw a Donald Trump rally because those would often climb to the top of the YouTube trendings back in those days. I saw that. I was like, man, these are some interesting ideas as well. And I was like, I find both of these interesting. Something is very wrong here. And so I decided, (laughs) yeah, I was like, you know, this is sort of classical story at this point. There's a lot of people my age, you'll see about this, but they, they often fail to do the next step, which is I actually went and I I tried to read and learn about the underlying principles and figure out what I believe there. And that's when my sort of temperamental values of restraint and fiscal conservatism, the personal sphere, traditional values, they came into consonance with a broader worldview, which was, you know, traditional constitutional conservatism. And then I looked for an organization at the beginning of my sophomore year where I could go to develop those further. And that's how I came into contact with Young Conservatives of Texas and, uh, and the rest is history. Would you describe yourself then, you know, you said that uh, you found Bernie interesting. And one thing that while, you know, Bernie and Trump have a lot of differences, they tend to both be described as on the more populist end of the spectrum of things. So there actually are a lot of folks out there who are intrigued by, you know, or have some sympathies, at least with both of those. I mean, my dad, for example, who's a fairly conservative guy, you know, has also said some favorable things about Bernie now and again. Would you describe yourself as being more of a populist in that way? Or was that just kind of a passing that was kind of a one-time thing? I think that populism had a unique way of kind of making me enraptured by politics, but I certainly don't consider it part of my identity now. You know, 51% of people getting to oppress 49% of people really doesn't appeal to me. And so... uh it, uh, it's just, it, 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 I, I do consider it valuable as an affectation in politics as far as how you rank order your priorities. Um, this is one thing that frustrated me about the, uh, Repu- that when Republicans had control of both chambers of Congress and the presidency is that the order of priorities based on what the election of Donald Trump would tell you on the Republican agenda of things that have been on the Republican agenda for a long time would, I think, have been different were they thinking in a populist direction. Mike Lee had a very good editorial about this in National Review a couple months ago when the big Tucker blow up happened uh, when he gave his monologue where he said, you know, you don't have to change what you believe to have a sort of performative populism, but you can emphasize certain priorities over others in order to make sure that the the people you deign to govern feel like they're being represented adequately. And I think there is some value in that. But no, I don't really consider myself a populist. So you became a conservative, then you got involved with YCT. How did you get involved in the free speech issue on campus? I think when you first came to my attention is something happened where, yeah, I mean, you, you must have really angered people because there were like post, you know, people were threatening violence against you. There's some sort of like posters or something. Do you, am I misremembering? Is that, is that, you know, was there some incident that sparked off that? Yeah. So that was actually, it, it, it can't really be defined as sparking my involvement in this because it it was sort of an apex in and of itself what you're referring to we did a a rally engagement sort of thing on campus uh, in support of judge kavanaugh during the height of hearings with posters um you know saying that no campus kangaroo courts in congress which is an alliteration i was very proud of but uh, (laughs) uh that sort of thing uh and that made people very angry. A crowd of about 100 people formed fairly quickly. And a girl came up, tried to tear up our signs um, and uh, succeeded in doing so, kind of slammed one of our, our members in the eye as she did so. And then uh, one of the posters, she was having difficulty tearing up. And so we have this 
fantastic video of her literally taking a bite out of it in an effort to tear it, you know, the way you do on plastic, <laughs> which is, it's, it's great. I, all of my mentors have told me, you know, 30 years will pass and you will forget what you were out there for, what political issue you were inspired by, but you will always remember someone tried to eat your sign. And that, that is something I will always remember. But yeah, that, that was a, that was a big blow up and camp's police failed to intervene in what I think was an effective way. But really that was the apex of our fight at UT campus because after that, it's actually been fairly fine. When I first got involved in YCT that October, I joined probably at September that October, YCT did an affirmative action bake sale. This is a concept that's been around for a long time. John Stossel has done it. You rank order prices for a baked good, you know, cookies in our case, uh, Asian male $2, Asian female $1.75, white male $1.50, white female $1.25, rank ordered down, you know, Native American free. And the idea is it's satirizing what we know to be true about how the affirmative action process works. This is evidenced by leaks that have occurred from University of Michigan's admissions process, for instance, where because they're processing such a large number of applications, they have no choice but to do these sort of reductive numerical perks or or reductions on your admissions score based on your race and gender. And so that blew up in a pretty big way. That was also the big story of the year when we did that. I wasn't there that day because I had the flu. Um, I'm, I'm curious what my trajectory would have been like if I had been. <laughs> but, uh, but I had actually prepared a uh, piece of literature that explained some of our points and you know had citations and stuff. And that never ended up getting handed out because things blew up so quickly. That was my first experience. And we had a, a growth in membership because of the publicity that got us. As the way I tend to do, I just kind of dived in head first and you know, quickly became an officer in the organization and kind of went from there. But I was always very purpose-driven when it came to what we were doing. I'm not a, a trigger-the-libs conservative. I, 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 don't, I don't like that sort of thing. You know, if your goal is to come on campus and you know, get a water bottle thrown at you or whatever, as, as some political actors do, that's, I'm, I'm not particularly interested in that. But I thought long and hard about how do you prevent this from happening? And I realized what the challenge has been historically. YCT would come out and do a, a provocative, interesting event like that once every year or two years. And that would cause campus to kind of reset and and think of conservatives as a group that's not on campus as opposed to a part of campus community. And then when conservatives suddenly show up, the reaction is that of an immune system fighting off an invader, and, and it tends to be much more pointed and aggressive. And so what I endeavored to do once I became the leader of the organization, which would happen in my senior year, was make conservatives omnipresent on campus, blow open the Overton window in such a way that people ignore us. And, and people frequently say the way to stop YCT is to ignore us. It's not quite right. YCT is doing what we're doing now for the purposes of them ignoring us. And that has implications for campus culture, but it also has implications for the administration. The administration can't operate the way it has historically and just call it infrequent incidences of free speech violations. They're forced to put in place norms and rules to deal with our omnipresence on campus. And so uh, we've actually faced very little harassment from the administration in the last year or so as well, partially because of our constant presence on campus. And so that was always my orientation in the free speech fight. It wasn't to get on Fox News, as, as people frequently do. It wasn't to get victim creds. Uh, one of the mentalities I try and inculcate in our members is, you know, happy warriors. It was to really blow open that Overton window on campus and make it so that the you know, centrist nominal right winger on campus is made reasonable 
or tolerable by virtue of, oh, those icky YC tears over there. So you say you didn't do all this for fame and glory, yet you were just at the White House. Tell us about that and, and why you were there. Yeah, it's, it's very interesting. So to give you guys the chronology on this, uh, Leadership Institute is an organization that helps out all sorts of conservative organizations. They help out Turning Point USA, Young Americans for Freedom. They help out YCT. They have field directors in various areas of the country. And so there was a field director at UC Berkeley who was helping a TPUSA chapter table who then proceeded to get you know, punched up by a guy about two months ago. And the video went extremely viral and everything. And so we're at CPAC and President Trump is giving his speech and he calls up that kid on stage. He says, this guy took a punch for all of us and proceeds to announce he's going to sign this executive order. And I was like, oh, this is very interesting. You know, there are ways to do this executive order that you know, are broadly in line with my views on executive power and, and the limitations that I think should be on that. And so I was, it took a very wait and see approach to this. Then come the Friday before the Thursday of the executive order signing, and I, you know, get a call. And it's like, have you checked your email inbox? I'm like, no, I haven't. I don't see anything in there. Find out it's in my junk folder. It says, you know, you have been invited by the social secretary of the White House to, to attend remarks on higher education. I was like, oh, this is interesting. I guess I get to take my spring break and uh, do a couple of red-eye flights back and forth from D.C., but, uh, you know, it was very interesting. And the language that they had used in the lead-up to it was promising. Um, it actually appears to be a cut-and-paste from a policy paper that Jay Grant Addison, formerly of AEI, now at the Washington Examiner, had created while he was at AEI doing education policy over there. And he has a very good conception of this stuff. And the, f- the fundamental idea behind it was tie federal grant funding for research to the protection of free speech rights on college campuses, which is very much in line with executive contingencies on these sort of fundings. It's not uh, beyond the pale at all. But we didn't have formal language. And so I kind of went in with this sort of skepticism. And so there were about 10 of us that received an invitation that Friday. And that's what they said was that there was just going to be a few of us. And then more people proceeded to get invitations over the course of the week. And we're like, okay, I guess they're going to have a big crowd there. Come to the White House, get an email, you know, come a little bit earlier. And we find out that they were siloing off, you know, 10 of the, in their view, the top activists uh, to stand behind the president as he gave the speech and, and signed the executive order. And so that's what uh, I'm, I'm in all of the, the images of him actually doing the signing. That's what, what that was like. Uh, you know, I have my presidential Sharpie now as well. It says made in the USA, you know, injection molded. It's you know, thick Sharpie. It's pretty great. Funny thing is I'm actually a, a, a pen nerd. And so uh, leave it to me to be invited to the White House during the presidential administration where they go away from actual pens and go to Sharpies. But uh, that's, uh, that's neither here nor there. What is your assessment of the state of free speech on campus? I can tell you, as someone who went to UT myself back in the uh, greatest decade of all time, the 1990s, you know, obviously there were left-wing activist people there on campus, and sometimes they would have their little dust-ups or whatever. But my impression is, I, I think it was probably because this was the period right after the Cold War, the Soviet Union had kind of collapsed. And so a lot of the ideas of the left had been kind of semi-discredited and they were a little bit more chastened and the people who were chastened were kind of treated as, you know, a little bit of a laughing stock. So there's perhaps a little bit more muted. And I certainly, despite the fact that I had, even for the time, what were fairly 
strident, you know, not very popular conservative views, uh, particularly on some social issues. I never felt, you know, this might have just been my own obliviousness, but I never felt like, oh, I, you know, if I say something, I'm going to be, in, you know, I'm going to get in trouble in terms of like academically or socially, you know, or, or people are going to confront me in some sort of menacing way. But so YCT, Young Conservatives of Texas, we have sort of a unique mandate amongst the college conservative organizations. We were founded 40 years ago, almost 40 years now explicitly for the purpose of getting involved in Texas politics. Most of these college conservative organizations take this sort of broad cultural conservatism mindset, you know, fight the culture, that sort of thing. YCT was always, no, we're going to change government. And with that sort of, you know, mandate and the camaraderie that comes with it, we have an extremely strong alumni network. You know, there are people who are there at the founding. We essentially were a product of the youth Reagan campaign in Texas they still come to our conventions. And so I, I have these conversations all the time, you know, and, and really they tell me it's always been this bad. Uh, you mentioned the 1990s. YCT did a rally in West Mall in support of Operation Desert Storm in the 1990s, and they had feces thrown at them. It was not some, you know, heyday of, of uh, you know, conservative liberation on college campuses. And so th- it was always bad. I think it's in a similar way to police brutality, not to not to equivocate on those two issues. Having video has changed a lot. Or we, we right. see this a lot more. There is a very elaborate infrastructure designed to publicize stories of conservative bias on college campuses. You know, everything from campus reform to, you know, campus reform, the project of the Leadership Institute that publicized these stories, I think was the most cited publication by Fox News last year. The most cited short of their own news site. And so, you know, there is much more elaborate methods of publicizing this. And there also has been a sort of revival in a go against the grain culture amongst college conservatives in the last 10 years. You know, historically, the the college Republicans of yore were generally kept to themselves, uh, with some exceptions. But the idea was, you know, it it was a social club for the right-wingers on campus to meet the other right-wingers on campus. There has been a revival in the sort of in-your-face activism to propagate your ideas beyond the group that already believes in them. And so I think that has inspired a reaction in accordance with it that has led to more and more incidents, and those incidents now get publicized. And there has also been the elaborate machinery also now includes widely publicized and available legal counsel, so students feel more bold in doing their activism because they know that ADF or FIRE or you know Speech First, run by my friend Nikki Neely, they're ready to, to help you out if you do end up facing problems. So what's the state of free speech on campuses in my view? I think I, I do take a little bit of a nuance to be on this. I do not think that American college campuses are some sort of, you know, uh, war zone. They're not. And and I take a specifically nuanced view with my own experience at UT. Not every professor who is on the left is looking to give conservatives bad grades. This is something I tell my members all the time, is that if you don't work hard on an assignment and then get a crappy grade on it, but you wrote about the border wall, the reason you got a bad grade on it was not because you wrote about the border wall. It was because you didn't put work into it. And so it's very easy when you have a victim mentality, which I try and avoid in our activism, to think that every slight against you is a product of bias. And it, it maps very similarly to the the racial obsessions that some people have, that any incident that happens to a person who happens to be part of some sort of beleaguered minority is a product of racism, sexism, Islamophobia, transphobia, etc. There is a similar mindset that has begun to emerge in the conservative movement, uh, especially amongst young people, that any incident against a young conservative is 
because they're young conservative. No, it can be for two reasons. Either they are incompetent or an asshole. And th- those are both part of it. So my, my own experience at UT, I have never had a professor who was on the left, who was anything but incredibly professional, fair, and in fact, even gave special weight to my voice in class and other conservative voice in class in order to balance the discussion. That has been my experience. I will not denigrate the experience of any of my peers who have felt differently. Now, I I am a biochemistry major. So first of all, most classes do not have (laughs) material implications for most political issues. But I'm also a government minor. And so I've taken a few government classes. And you know, your your basic core curricula and such do touch on some social sciences had incredibly fair professors. Now, we are in Texas. UT Austin is in the top 10 of schools with Heterodox Academy members. Heterodox Academy is a sort of coalition of professors who sign on to this statement supporting academic freedom and free inquiry on college campuses. So, And we're in Texas at the end of the day. There is a certain culture here that is a little bit different. I have peers that have experienced some weird stuff in their classes and the advocacy disciplines. If you're a sociology major, psychology major, you're much more likely to encounter this sort of thing. And look, I mean, here's one weird thing that did happen to me. Uh, I was taking my intro to psych class uh, my freshman year, and they literally administered the racial bias test. This was an online class, one of these fancier ones where they, uh, you know, it's very interactive and watch it live. They literally administered a racial bias test and called it good social science. And so there, there are issues, but it's not, it's not as bad as some actors would have you believe. But leftist violence does occur and people do fear for their safety. When we did our Kavanaugh event, that was sort of our resurgence on campus, you know, and, and it brought new scrutiny on us. The Antifa chapters, they proceeded to dox about 30 of us, releasing our phone numbers, email addresses, and employers. One of my uh, YCT officers who worked for a nonpartisan law firm at the time, the law firm received phone calls saying, hey, do you know what this disgusting person who works for your office is? And they didn't care, but but she didn't know that they wouldn't care. And so that sort of stuff does happen. Those sort of cultural pressures against conservatives being active on campus does happen quite a bit. And there are many administrations, frequently at private schools, though sometimes at public schools as well, that are not interested in fostering an environment of free speech and, and uh, free inquiry. Uh, you know, Representative Briscoe Kane experienced this at the Thurgood Marshall School of Law when he went to go speak. You know, the administration took him off because the student activists weren't happy that he was there giving a speech that a fed sock chat. You know, this stuff does happen. But I think by catastrophizing, sometimes we do a disservice um, in a similar way to hate crimes uh, to the people who actually do experience it. Uh, So that's my my very nuanced, you know, big brain view of this sort of thing. I think that if you look at the demographics in terms of current politics, uh, not to make this so much about Trump, but if you just look at the polling, even among Republicans, Trump's popularity suffers sort of the younger you get, if you will, among Republican voters. What do you think the effect of Trump is on the popularity of conservatism, um, on personal liberty, personal freedom? And how do you reach out to young people and try to bring them back to conservative ideas? Is is Trump sort of uh, an obstacle to that message? Or how do you go forward? So I'll, I'll preface this with the, I think, obvious thing that, that most people realize that young people are always going to lean left. Now, that doesn't mean that you give up because how many of those you capture does matter for your, you know, your electoral prospects. And 
and what trajectory you put people on does matter as well. But you know, it's interesting, his poll numbers amongst young people. I think one of the challenges is of this highly politicized time is there's a lot of people who grow up with a, you know, family that is, you know, Republican or a family that is liberal. And then they they go through many years of life just sort of maintaining that affect that they grew up with. You know, they're Republican because their parents are Republican. They're conservative because their parents were conservative. What the 2016 election and what the era of Donald Trump does, I think, is makes everyone take stock and have their own little mini referenda in their head about what they actually believe. And the challenge with young people is that by product of the environments that they find themselves in, by products of the idealism that comes with youth, is that you're not going to do particularly well with those sort of nominal Republicans because they grew up Republicans if you force them to have referenda on their politics in the era of Trump. The social stigmas against being a conservative and a Republican are strong, sometimes for good reasons, sometimes not. And just in general, it's a losing battle when you have people's political awakening occur when they're 20 as opposed to when they're 30. Because when you're 20, you've maybe put in one tax return that you've got a bigger refund than you actually paid. You are in college uh considering a life of work, you know, drinking yourself into a stupor every night, and you don't really have a job or any commitments. You don't have a mortgage, you don't have a family. Government is at most a hobby. This is actually a bias I try and correct for. I try and tell my peers to as well is that at the end of the day, we need to be careful not to fall into our own ideological rabbit holes with all our lofty minded ideas without any uh, attention to the fact that we don't actually have much stake in the game when it comes to the political outcomes in this country. This is why I think, you know, block walking, knocking doors, talking to voters is so important because you often forget what you're doing this for. And so I I think people having to do those little ideological referenda on themselves at a young age as caused by, you know, Trump's outsized effect in the culture is losing for us. I also think that there's a lot of people who, you know, because they, if they do come to a young conservative mindset, they come to it for idealistic reasons. They believe in freedom. They believe in life. They believe in these lofty ideas. And Trump is not an ideological president. Trump is a lot of things, but I I think everyone can agree that he does not have a worldview. Trumpism does not exist. And anyone who tries to craft an ideology around it is engaging in sophistry, I think. I think the challenge you have with young conservatives is that they become very disillusioned, especially compared to an era like the, you know, Ascendant Tea Party, where it seemed like principled politics was going to be the name of the game. You see Donald Trump, it's like, well, well, this isn't what I, you know, came here for. I came here to talk about, you know, the glory of I pencil from Milton Friedman and, you know, the value of life beginning at conception. Donald Trump is not uh, very conducive to that sort of mindset. There's also a darker edge that politics has taken, I think. This is my very good criticism of Steve Bannon that Ben Shapiro makes frequently. Steve Bannon's political mindset was, you know, this sort of dark, grim, preventing the end of Western civilization. And you can agree or disagree if Western civilization is about to end, but it's not a mindset to inculcate a movement. Uh, You need to be happy warriors. Otherwise, you're going to burn out, become bitter, divisive, and fall down you know, extremist rabbit holes. And so I think that there's this perfect confluence of issues that are making it so that we're losing people who otherwise would not have made up their mind during a time it's bad for conservatives and Republicans to make up your mind about politics. We're taking idealistic people who are likely to be conservatives and turning them off of the process because of how unprincipled a time we live in. And then the reverse is true in that Trump mobilizes young people in a way against him that that no other president has in a long time. So lots of things play into it, but, but those are my surface level thoughts. 
I would maybe take issue with one thing that you said is that I do think Trump has a worldview. Uh, perhaps it's not in the form of a explicitly, you know, well worked out, coherent ideology. But there are, I think, some at an almost instinctual level, general instincts and, and reactions there that are not only consistent to him, but that are part of this kind of process that we see throughout the world over the last decade or so that expresses itself kind of a little differently in every country. You know, to take the three other countries that are going through either political elections right now or, you know, turmoil. I mean, you have right now about to have elections in Israel and India and in Netanyahu and Modi, you have people who, while very different from Trump in a lot of ways, have themselves tapped into a kind of populist, conservative, national greatness style of politics that it's not surprising to me that, you know, Netanyahu and Trump seem to get along as well as as they do. Uh, and then, of course, even, you know, the other cases in the United Kingdom with Brexit, again, kind of like a resurgence of national sovereignty, although that seems to be kind of a a mess, you know, perhaps because there's no equivalent yeah. Trump figure to lead it. <laughs> I don't know. So there is something there. It's obviously, it's very different from the Milton Friedman logical, we start with principle X and that leads us to Y and Z, the stuff that is definitely there in the American conservative movement with like a Mike Lee, for example, right? Or a Ted Cruz. But I do think that there, you know, it, it's more than just the irritable gestures of the mind. Yeah, of an individual I, I think there. there's a couple of couple of interesting things there. So the vast majority of voters are not ideological. They 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 don't have coherent worldview. They have this hodgepodge of beliefs that they have that are a product of their environment, their upbringing, their rational self interest, and their cultural proclivities. As far as the sort of transnational right wing resurgence, uh, this is something I spent a decent amount of time thinking about because I think about white nationalism, the alt right a lot. And, and how obsessed they seem to be with this sort of internationalist awakening, if you will, of, of reactionary sentiment. I would caution a little bit, you know, ascribing pattern uh, where none may exist. Narendra Modi was elected with, uh, because of the quirks of the election system in India, with the lowest percentage of the vote of any ruling party in the history but with also the largest margin in their legislature. It was a very curious thing. And, and he his reforms have been neoliberal in a way. The, the thing that this upcoming election is essentially a referendum on was his overnight banning of currency in order to prevent uh, illegal transactions in the Indian economy and modernize it and you know, forcing people to open bank accounts and stuff. That's not a, it's not a right-wing reactionary position. It's, it's neoliberal, if anything. Um, I support it wholeheartedly because you need to bring that economy into daylight somehow. It's often very tempting to ascribe greater trends to international politics where none may exist, I think. Uh, and look, Modi has tapped into Hindu nationalist sentiment, I think, partially rightly. I mean, his, his administration is in response to a sort of center-left uh, you know, progressive administration that 10 years prior. And there are these sort of proto-American race relations, political uh, interests that are manifesting there as well. You know, affirmative action is a political flashpoint in India right now, not amongst the races, but amongst castes. And that's causing all sorts of interesting things to happen in their politics um, that has some corollaries to this stuff here. Netanyahu, I mean, I don't know that much about Israel's politics, but my understanding is that there is a very unique set of interests there as well. I mean, right now, the election that's about to come up is essentially going to be Netanyahu versus the military. It's not really a, a, a <laughs> there's no good parallels to be made there. 
Brexit. Brexit, I think, is the most interesting corollary to the American model uh, of what we're going through. But I think that it was also just a little bit different because in some ways you put Brexit on the ballot. And I've started to take the Jay Cost perspective on this, that putting something like that for referendum in a parliamentary system is very foolish because what does Brexit mean? Brexit is a Rorschach test, you know, and, you know, they put up eight different versions ranging from no Brexit to no deal Brexit up for a vote on the floor of parliament the other day, and none of them got a majority. And so I I think that they're going through their own interesting political movement. And I think the American reaction that created Trump, to some degree, is a a part of part and parcel of the globalization of, of news and the fear on behalf of many Americans, I think rightly, that they can look at what's happening in Europe with uncontrolled immigration and, and the challenges that come with that on your, your democratic institutions and say, we don't want to be part of this. And so a reactionary figure like Trump makes a lot of sense in that case. I would agree with you by and large that you know there are certain instincts and proclivities that could be described as Trumpism, but Tucker Carlson, who's come the closest to articulating a political alternative created by the era of Trump, emphasizes over and over that it's all about not being doctrinaire. Um, and, you know, doctrinaire is a is almost a dirty word at this point. And, and I do think conservatism properly understood is anti-utopian and by consequence anti-ideological in this sort of strict adherence to doctrine sort of way. But I do think that there definitely is an absence of that, you know, Friedman-esque principle X leads to conclusion Y. And if by just process, then we're happy with the results. I think that that is certainly on the wane in American politics. uh, And it's frustrating to see politicians continue down that road. Well, on that cheery note, we'll we'll end it there. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us today. If you enjoyed today's show, please subscribe on SoundCloud, iTunes, Sketchers. Wear a pair of tennis shoes with our name on them. Uh, I guess uh, it's going to be a fun show, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs)